0: To Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm so glad you've joined us today. Faith is important, and we're going to talk about some of the most important things involving Christian faith. In fact, we're going to take a look at, and that's part of what we're going to take a look at, we're going to take a look at the most consequential rhetorical question ever asked in the history of the world. And people are still asking it when the answer to the question And the answer to the questioner's question, when it actually took place, was right there standing in front of him. Well, we're going to explore that a little bit. We'll get to that in a minute. But I want to thank you for joining us. We do this program to help you, and we hope it does help you. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. We have a great bunch of people. We're just like every other church well, maybe not like every church. We try to remain faithful to the Bible. It's what I hope every other church will be. Uh, uh, and and we're not we're not super Christians. We're just regular people that are trying to live faithfully and challenge each other to grow in our understanding of what it means to follow faithfully and do what the Bible asks us to do. And we call this program Faith Is and. I do that because we try to to talk about what faith really is, and I've defined faith as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, I know, and you know, and I'm not reluctant to admit that faith can be a lot more things than that simple phrase. It often has a lot of qualifiers associated with it because it's an abstract concept that all of us, we try to get. A concrete handle on. I mean, if it's only an abstract concept, and if it doesn't mean anything for, for me and, and you and how we live our lives, then it's really much more difficult to have faith. And so I, I try to bring things down to a concrete level. Uh, sometimes I say to people, that's because I'm in the slow group, and I need that. Uh, that's only half true. Uh, what I really want to do is to help you understand what it means to have faith, and not just faith in the general kind of abstract understanding, you know, where people will say, you got to have faith. Well, what does that mean? So that's why I came up with this definition that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I've been thinking about that a little bit here recently, and uh, one of the things I like about our time together is that we can just kind of think along with each other and explore these things, And, and in some respects, just think out loud together. And so it's important for us to make sure we think about what this idea of faith is, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Well, so I want to start at the end of that phrase and say, it's about God. And you know, you can have faith in a lot of things, but we're not talking about just any old kind of faith in any old kind of thing. In a sense, we could say, I have faith that I'm going to get in my car and drive home later today. Well, yeah, I guess I do, but that's not the faith we're talking about here. We're talking about a faith in God. We're talking about faith in God, the God that's described to us or maybe I should say, revealed to us in the pages of the Bible. So it's not just any concept of God. We're talking about a very concrete, specific revelation of God that starts in the book of Genesis in the Bible and concludes in the book of Revelation. God has given us this information so that we can know him, so we can understand, so we can know how to live, so we can one day... As Psalm 23 reminds us, dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So when we talk about faith, we're talking about God, the object of our faith, we often say. And we want to talk about believing in God, but I've been more specific in that than that. I've said absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and I do that for a reason because a lot of people will say they believe in God. Well, what does that mean? They believe God exists, okay, fine, but is that all they believe? So when I was trying to think about faith, I was trying to say, okay, now how do we how do we make this so that it, it helps me every day? And so I was thinking, and that's where I came up with this phrase, and I'm certainly willing to modify it, if people come along and give me some better understanding. I'm not pretending I have the last word on that, but none of us would think that's the case but absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So, so all of these descriptions or qualifiers in this phrase find their conclusion in God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who was revealed to us in the person of Jesus, who was born, we celebrate his birth at Christmas, who lived the most amazing life, never did anything wrong, but sadly, he was put on trial and ultimately crucified, buried. But that wasn't the end of the story. He came back to life at resurrection. And so that's the revelation of God. That's the God we're talking about here. So we're, we're talking about a God who is revealed to us in the Bible as creator As sustainer of the world, we're talking about the God who came to earth in the person of Jesus, who lived like all the rest of the people did at that time. He was a person just like you. And yet, He took on Himself, on our behalf, the responsibility and the penalty of sin. And He died, He was buried but that wasn't the end of the story because God raised him to new life. So we're talking about the very specific concept of God, and that's important. We're also talking about trustworthiness. Well, do we really think God is trustworthy? You know, when, when I was growing up, I was taught that we needed to be trustworthy people, and so I behaved myself in ways that I hoped people would trust me, and and they did on some amazing things. I mean, I look back, and I'm a little surprised at some of those kinds of things. I did not necessarily think I deserved the trust of people, but I was glad they did. So you understand that. You you understand that there are some people you trust and (laughs) some people you don't trust. Well, we get that. Um, You probably have been trusted before. And maybe you've been around some situations where people didn't trust you. It's not a good feeling to think that people don't trust us. And so God is in a similar spot. He wants us to trust Him. And so we want to consider His trustworthiness. So the definition says we have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, which means what God says we can count on. Which means we don't have to wonder whether God will do what he says he'll do. In other words, we don't have to wonder about God at all. We can place our trust in him. And if we trust him, then I guess what follows is that we believe what he says and we do what he says. So I suppose that means if we don't believe what he says or do what he says, that means we don't really trust him and trustworthiness has more to do with with our behaviors toward the one we trust than it was does with our talking about it you know like i said people might believe there is a god but do they trust him and is that evidenced by what they do and what they refuse to do if we believe god is trustworthy Then we do what he says and we accept what he says as true, reliable, dependable. Faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, even when I say that again, many of us will think, well, of course, God is trustworthy. He's God. That's true. Is it true in the way we respond to God? So let's let's take it back a little further. Absolute confidence. Confidence. Do you have confidence in God? Now, what, what do we think about when we think of confidence? Well, we think of confidence in other people, and I suppose because they're trustworthy. We have confidence that Uh, I know it's kind of ridiculous, but we have confidence that when we sit on our chair at our dining room table, we're confident it's not going to collapse under us. Well, that's a mild view of confidence. I've heard people say we are confident we're going to walk over to the switch on the wall and turn on the light and it's going to come on. We have confidence. There are things that we have come to understand that we can be confident in there are things we can be confident about. So confidence as it relates to God has to do with, are we confident that God is trustworthy? Now, it's one thing to say, well, yeah, God is trustworthy. It's another thing to say, yeah, I'm confident that he is. I'm confident that my car will start. I'm confident that I can go to the store and buy eggs. I'm I'm confident about The sun will come up in the morning because God has put it in place. I'm confident about things. Confident in God's trustworthiness. Do we really believe God is trustworthy? See, that's the kind of thing that I'm challenging us to think about, and and not just in the abstract, but in the concrete, because it's going to matter. So uh, the 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 rubber-hitting-the-road example that seems to me, is always the one that challenges people, always. It's also the one that people least like to think about. But if you have confidence in God's trustworthiness, then when the Bible says that we need to give of our money to God, then we won't hesitate to give what God asks us to give to Him. I've over my lifetime observed that people will go through all kinds of justification for why God does not ask us to give him 10%. All I can say to that is the Bible over and over teaches the principle that when we put God first in our finances, he will help us, and he will bless us in ways that are more than the supposed cost of giving our tithes and offerings to Him. So so see, if we have confidence that God is trustworthy in what He tells us, then we do some of these things. And I'm not trying to pick on the money issue uh, for any particular reason, except that it's measurable. And it really seems to be where people struggle a lot these days. And as far as I can remember, people struggle there. The only people that don't struggle are the people that faithfully tithe and give offerings to God as he blesses them. They don't struggle because they know they can have confidence in God, his trustworthiness, and so they trust him and they give to him and they trust him to provide for what they need. And they do without what they don't need, even though they think they need it, because they trust God. Absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So, do we think God is trustworthy and do we have confidence in that trustworthiness, that God will do what he says, that God is who he says he is. And I put another qualifier in there, and I think what I was trying to do when I was crafting this idea was really bring it down to usable terms. So I put in the word absolute confidence. And what I meant by that is unwavering, confidence that is absolutely convinced, doesn't waver, but is resolutely confident in the trustworthiness of God. Absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. That's faith, or a way of describing faith. I hope you'll think about that, and I hope you'll ask yourself, am I that person? Do I have that kind of faith? Do I have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God? And then use that as a way to say, hmm, maybe I don't when it comes to this. So I need to reexamine what's causing me to doubt God or to be afraid that that's not so. And so I better not do that because, well, then we get into the area where. We think we know better than God, but if we have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, then we will do what He says, we will accept what He says as true, and we will guide our lives based upon that. Well, I've been thinking about that, so I just thought maybe you and I ought to think about that some more, and, and so every time we think about faith if Think about absolute confidence and then the trustworthiness of God. I'm telling you that that regularly gets my attention regularly because I think about that in terms of, of the decisions that I make, of the attitudes I form, of the way I might live my life, the way I lead the church, all of those things. Do I have absolute confidence? in the trustworthiness of god that's huge i hope you'll think about it well let's let's um, kind of apply some of that in our conversation today and i want to begin by going back to this idea of the of what i called the the most consequential rhetorical question of all time uh, some people might say well that's an overstatement well think about it here it is The most consequential statement of all time, as I'm thinking about it here, is this very simple question. It's a rhetorical question. What is truth? What is truth? The most consequential question that we ask is, what is truth? And then, of course, how we decide something is true is very significant. And what we choose to believe as true is very significant. What is truth? Now, you may recognize that question as coming from Pilate when he was put on the spot, you could say. Uh, I don't feel sorry for him for that, but he was put on the spot in terms of what he was going to do with Jesus. He had these comp- competing forces, and and he really couldn't find any fault in Jesus' And in his conversation with Jesus, at one point, Pilate said, what is truth? Well, it's very interesting when you look at that, because when you look at that story, just previous to that, Jesus had said to him in that conversation, Jesus had said, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. That's in John chapter 18. You can look at verse 37 and 38. The reason I was born And came into the world is to testify to the truth. So if Pilate really wanted to know the truth, Jesus just said, I came to tell the truth. Pilate didn't pursue that. Earlier, you may remember that um, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So right there in front of Pilate was the embodiment of the answer to his question, what is truth? There was Jesus who said, I came to testify the tr- to the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Pilate didn't need to ask that question rhetorically, although, he, by my understanding of the story there, and as you read the story, you can see that he just asked it rhetorically and turned away. We could have speculated a long time what would have been different if Pilate hadn't turned away, but he did. And still today, people will ask that question, what can I believe in? What is true? Now they ask it in different ways. They don't necessarily ask it straight up like Pilate did, what is truth? But in all of our lives, we're asking and answering that question, what is true? So I can know what to do. I can know how to live. I can know what decisions to make. We want to know what is true. And so That's another reason that I like my definition. I hope you don't mind if I like my own definition too much, but faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Or I guess we could say when we adopt that perspective that that we're saying we believe God tells the truth. Hmm. There's a little different way of thinking about it. If you have faith in God, you believe God tells the truth. Because you believe he's trustworthy. Well, you get the idea. I guess we don't need to go back over all of that again. So I want to switch now to take our attention to another statement of Jesus that he made to his disciples in John chapter 16. I mean, made a lot of statements through chapter 14, 15, 16, along in their long discourse of Jesus teaching his followers. The way the context of John reads, is as though he was saying all of those things during the Last Supper, and he may have, there are people who think maybe he, he said all of these things, and they were later compiled and put into this spot, as John tells the story. I don't know. I just know we have them reliably as the words of Jesus. And he said some very interesting things in a rather short paragraph. Jesus said this, John chapter 16, verse 12, and I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. That is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. So let's unpack that a little bit and and see how that can help us develop our confidence in God's trustworthiness. So it's really interesting right off the bat in that paragraph, Jesus says, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. Now, this is in the middle of him telling them many things. So it's really interesting that he says there's a lot more that I'd like to help you with, but, but you can't handle it right now. And, and that's really, really kind of curious. As far as I know, we don't have a list of things that later we found out Jesus told us. But for whatever, the, the disciples were on overload, apparently, and he couldn't tell them anymore because they couldn't, they couldn't process it at the time. They couldn't bear it, as he says. But then he goes on to say, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So now Jesus is referring to the coming of the Holy Spirit. We talk about that at Pentecost. That was last weekend as our church celebrates it. Probably yours did too. Hope they did. So God gives the gift of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus says that when the Spirit of truth—now I know that this verse doesn't say Holy Spirit, but Spirit of truth is used in other places in the Scriptures to identify the Holy Spirit's coming. So when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Now, it's very interesting that he calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth, because there's all kinds of interesting ways the Holy Spirit is described, but Jesus is saying it's the Spirit of truth. So I can depend on what the Holy Spirit tells me, or better, tells us, because he says when the Holy Spirit, or when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth guide you. Now, is Jesus saying you individually, me individually, or is there something more going on here, something different? Well, almost every time in the New Testament, and I'm sure that you can always find exceptions to anytime somebody says all the time, but you will rarely go wrong in the New Testament when you see the word you, and you understand it to be used in the plural sense. So remember, Jesus is here, and there's no question about it. He's talking to a group of his followers, his disciples, shall we say. And he says, the Holy Spirit will guide you. So he's talking to the group, you, all of you into the truth, all the truth. So one of the really interesting things and important things we should take away from that is that that we help each other come to understand the truth because he guides us together. That's a role the church plays in helping us understand so that I don't get off the, the, the main thing and get into a ditch somewhere that I have people, and I have the church to help guide me and keep me focused on that which is true and right, so that I don't get caught up in things that will lead me or cause me to lead other people astray. It will guide you into all the truth. So we have great confidence that because the Holy Spirit has come that that we can grasp and understand the truth. He goes on to say, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. So that means the Holy Spirit is getting his information from a source outside himself. Well, that's a kind of a curious thing. He will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you, what is to come. So Jesus is trying to help them understand why they can trust the spirit of truth. He's trying to help them understand what role in their lives, in the life of the church, the people of God, the Holy Spirit will play. And he says, he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. Now, there's been a fair amount of question about what does that mean, what is to come? Does that mean The Holy Spirit's going to help us predict the future. Well, most of the conclusion on that is that it's not so much about predicting the future as it is guiding us to understand life as it unfolds and to make sense of the things. Now, one of the things that's interesting is Jesus made this statement before the cross, before the disciples knew. In the context of the story, he made that statement before that all happened. So, it could be that he was referring to the Holy Spirit helping all of us make sense and understand the significance of what was happening before their eyes, what was happening with his death, burial, and resurrection. So, he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. So, there's another hint that the Holy Spirit gets what he hears from jesus now why is that significant well jesus disciples had come to trust him i guess you could say they had absolute confidence in his trustworthiness and so jesus is giving them a reason to trust the work of the holy spirit because the holy spirit wasn't a different source of that which is true the holy spirit came from him and he would be the and he would then pass that along to the disciples Everything the Father has, Jesus continues, everything the Father has is mine. That is why I told you that He takes from what is mine and we will declare it to you. So now Jesus is connecting the Holy Spirit's declaration to the church as coming from not just Himself, but also from God. Because of that, Jesus would expect the disciples to have confidence in what the Holy Spirit would say. And so We have this reassurance from Jesus that we can understand that which is true and right because it says the Holy Spirit, says in these verses in the Scriptures, that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, comes to guide us, the people of God, into all truth. So Jesus, in those words, is really helping us have confidence in what we will come to understand. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean, and for the most part, we don't come up with new things that Jesus did not teach or the Bible does not tell us. We've got to be real cautious here about saying, well, there's things that we're going to turn out to be true that are different from what the Bible says. Very cautious there. I don't want to go there. I'm much more convinced that God is taking what he has revealed to us and helping us make sense of it or make meaning of it. For example, the concept of the Trinity is a derived concept based on the realization that the Bible talks about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And right here, it talks about how the Holy Spirit will communicate to us what comes from the Father and the Son, a very Trinitarian concept. So let's not get in the ditch thinking that suddenly we're going to be able to predict the future. That's not what the Bible is talking about here. It's talking about helping us to understand that which is true and right and then how to live our lives going forward and that's important for us don't you think I, yeah i think it's kind of important to know how to live our lives because how we live our lives determines where we will live our lives forever one day and i sure want you to join with all of god's people in the new jerusalem what we usually refer to as heaven I want you to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that's what we want for all people. So God is going to guide us so that we can have absolute confidence in his trustworthiness. And then we can live lives and respond to him in a way that reflects that confidence and that makes us, helps us, leads us to follow him all the way home. Well, we're we'll going to talk about some more about the truth and some of the things that we need to believe in just a few minutes. And I want to go through a list of some things and ask you, help you help us think along together. Do we believe these things? Do we have confidence in these ideas? So you sit back, take a break, take a breath. We're going to come back and talk about that in just a few minutes.
1: Pick up a bottle for you and your family today.
0: Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day. Yet we seldom think about how to rid the air
1: of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD.
0: With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. This is Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we challenge each other to develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, because we define faith as faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we've been talking about that idea. We've kind of started with Pilate's rhetorical question that I suggested earlier was the most consequential rhetorical question of all time, because it asked the question, what is truth? And our lives are guided by what we believe is truth. And so it's very important. And Pilate, I suggested, had that answer to that right in front of him, in the person of Jesus, and he just turned away. And we don't want to turn away because we want to embrace that idea. Well, as I said, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and, and you're listening to this program brought to you by the good people at my church in Cape Coral, Florida, Diplomat Wesleyan Church. And we really hope this helps you and challenges you to to think through some important things, because life is important and what we do in this life matters. We've been talking about truth and the concept of of confidence in God, and that we need to believe the truth. And so, I want to go through six things. There's a concept out there called biblical worldview, and it gets talked about in a lot of ways, and. Uh, this is not the first or the last word on it that we're going to talk about today, but it's a, but it's a, uh, uh, how should I say, an idea to help us think about it. Now, when we say worldview, what are we talking about? Well, I think of it, and I, I think this is a helpful way to think of it. It's the lens through which we view the world. So when we say biblical worldview, then we're talking about a particular perspective that we use to look at life to think about the things that happened and we process all of that through that lens of the bible. A lot of ways people look at the world. This is only one of them, but if we want to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, we want to look at the world through a biblical lens, a biblical worldview. See, if if I did not have the lenses that are in my glasses that I'm using right now, I wouldn't be able to see the world the same. Believe me. The world would be a very fuzzy place, but because of those lens, they correct my vision. And now I can see clearly. And I just recently got new glasses and they helped. The old ones were not quite what they needed to be. My eyes had changed somehow. And so they prescribed a different lens and it's remarkable. I can read the titles on the books across the room. I can see where I need to go when I walk outside, So that lens through which I see life is very important because I either see it in a fuzzy way without my glasses or in a clear way, and a biblical worldview gives us clarity on the world as it is and as God has created it to be and as He wants us to understand it. So a biblical worldview is one way that we develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So different people suggest different Components of a biblical worldview. I just want to talk about six of them. And, and people are always going to discuss right. which, which one matters more, which one did we leave out, or how do we exactly talk about it? And there's a lot of ways to talk about it. And I encourage you to explore that. One of the leading uh, researchers on worldview is George Barna. And so you read his research and, and follow the way he. Uh, examines worldview and people's beliefs. It's very, very quite insightful. Very, very insightful. You would enjoy that. So, you might want to look that up. But I just want to take this list of ideas, six of them, and ask the question: Do you believe this? And if you do, and if you apply your beliefs to life and your decision making, then you will be much better off because the way we see things helps us decide things. And it's the living out of life that matters, not just, well, I believe there's a God. Good for me. Well, that's not at all what the Bible is talking about. If you believe there's a God, do you have confidence in him? And do you trust him? And do you live your life in light of that belief? See, some people want to believe in God when it's convenient. And other times they just don't even apply that to their lives. I know people like that. I don't want to be them. On that great day of the lord because they and god are going to have to have a conversation and i'm sure glad and they're sure glad i'm not god at that point but we all have to give an account and that's part of a biblical worldview those same people probably understand that one day they'll have to give an account i guess they're just hoping that their understanding is right whether it lines up with the biblical view or not well anyway you see where we're going here so first item I'd like first idea, first item on my list here that I that I got is the is, is this to see if you believe this. Do you believe God is the creator of the world and rules this universe? Now there's a lot of qualifiers maybe in there, but let's start with God as the Creator. No Christian perspective denies that God is the Creator. There's a lot of conversation about creation these days in terms of mechanism, how did God create? But all of the conversation starts with God is the creator. God is the source of all of this. So you have to ask yourself, do you believe God is the source? Our country's founders believed God is the source. It talks about how we are endowed by our creator with certain rights. Look it up in the Declaration of Independence. So do you believe God is the creator of the world? And then the second part of this first idea is, and he rules this universe. You see, that's, that's hugely significant. You might believe God is a creator, but he's left the building and he's not involved anymore. Well, a biblical worldview says God has not left the building. God is very much involved and he rules the universe. Now, some people say, well, God must not be involved because bad things happen. Fair enough question. But what makes you think that bad things happen with God's permission? Remember, He gives us the choice, and that's really what I'm challenging here the choice to believe him and do the right thing. And some people don't believe him. They don't believe he's the creator and they don't believe he rules, so they do whatever they want to do. Do you believe God is the creator of the world and rules this universe? And the answer is yes. Do you believe the Bible is God's word for mankind and is completely accurate, including matters of life and its origin? Well, that goes back to the creator idea. Do you believe God is a creator? And if you do, that's a huge, huge influence on your life, because if there's no God and no creation, then you have no one to answer to. But do you believe the Bible is God's word for mankind and is completely accurate, including matters of life and its origin? Now, see, there's a lot to that perspective, too. People might say, well, I believe the Bible, but but it's wrong over here. Well, then you don't believe the Bible, you believe parts of the Bible. And if you believe parts of the Bible, then you're picking and choosing based on something that you don't want to believe that part. For example, I, I'm convinced that the Bible tells me not to kill people. I should not murder. Well, You probably think that too. Well, I believe the Bible's right about that. I believe the Bible's right when it says I'm not supposed to steal from you, and I'm not going to steal from you. And you're not going to steal from me if you believe that the Bible's Instructions are what we should follow. Now, if you pick and choose those, like perhaps you don't think that we should honor the Lord on the Lord's Day on Sunday. Perhaps you don't think that's any big deal. Well, the Bible says to to do that. And if we really believe what the Bible says and it's accurate for us and how to live, then we do that. See, that's the that's the idea of a biblical worldview. Next item, let's think about this. Do you believe that because of God and his word, absolute moral truth exists? What that's getting at is do you believe there's such a thing as right and such a thing as wrong? And do you believe that comes from the revelation of God and the Bible? See, the Bible is a revelation of God. We don't worship the Bible, we worship the God that the Bible describes but it gives us the information so that we will understand God and what He expects. And so the question is, do you believe there is such a thing as that which is right and that which is wrong? Now, some people today, they struggle with that because they read the Bible and it says this is right and this is wrong, and they say, but I don't like that. I don't want to have to live by that. I want to do what I want to do. And they will make statements like, And this is really over over the top, but you maybe have heard this kind of thing. They'll make statements like, there is no such thing as absolute moral truth. And so they're making that statement as though it's an absolute statement about moral truth. And if you don't believe there's any such thing as absolute truth, you can't make absolute statements about absolute truth. Well, the problem isn't that people don't understand. Or aren't able to understand. The problem is, do we choose to accept what God says is true and right? Do we choose to accept that when God tells us that we're supposed to live a certain way, like, for example, Father's Day is coming up, when the Bible says honor your father and your mother, every now and then I've come across somebody who says, well, you wouldn't say that if you knew my father or my mother. And you know, I, I, don't doubt that people have had difficult times with their fathers or their mothers. I know that not every father and every mother is exactly what every child would hope they would be for them. But the Bible doesn't say, honor your father and mother if you liked the way they treated you. Uh, there are plenty of times in our lives growing up for most of us that we'd say, we didn't really like what they expected of us. But we have to come to grips with. It's not about whether we liked what they expected of us or any of that sort of thing. It's really about what God says is to honor our father and mother. And that doesn't have an expiration date. Every now and then I get the sense of some people that if their father or mother or both have died, that they no longer have to honor them and see if we believe God is telling us the truth, and then we're obligated to honor our father and mother always, period. End of story. Let's go a little deeper here. Do you believe Jesus is the only begotten Son of God, and He lived a sinless life, died for our sins, was buried, and rose again from the grave three days later? Wow, there's a lot there, isn't there? But that's a powerful statement And it's important for us to come to grips with. Do we believe that? That's part of a biblical worldview. If you're going to look at the the world through the lens of the Bible, then you have to come to grips with that. So, yeah, do you believe that God sent Jesus as his son? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that's the famous John 3.16. Do you believe that Jesus did come from God? Do you believe, second part of that statement is, do you believe he lived a sinless life? Now that causes some people some difficulty because people start bumping up against the realization that that it takes some real courage and discipline to live a life free of intentional sin. And so they get kind of caught up in that. So they think, well, I can't. So Jesus surely didn't. And that is a trap. The Bible teaches us clearly that Jesus was without sin. And if we understand that, then we look at the world differently because we recognize that there was something about Jesus that was different. And so what he taught and what he did affects us in ways that we need to come to grips with. So if he lived a sinless life and died for our sins, there's a package of information that goes a long ways toward explaining the problem that we're in, and the solution. It's not really too difficult for most people to admit that they've done something wrong, or they've sinned, as the Bible says. Not usually too difficult. Some, some people will argue that, I suppose. Or they'll say, well, I'm doing the best I can. That, that's, I'm not getting, are you doing the best you can? I'm asking straight up, have you ever done what you knew you shouldn't do? Have you ever failed to do what you knew God was asking you to do? That's roughly the definition of sin. So if we believe Jesus lived a sinless life, then he didn't deserve to pay the penalty for sin. But the Bible clearly teaches that he died for sin. Or more specifically, the Bible says he became sin for us. That's a very strong statement. So, do you believe that he died for our sins, for the sin of people? It's very significant that he did, because when he did, he broke the power of sin and evil, and he crushed it on the cross. And if you believe that, then you see the world and his expectations of you very differently. Well, okay, so we're good so far. He lived a sinless life. He died for our sins. He was buried. Well, okay. The story tells us he was buried. We have good evidence for that. I'm not going to question that he died for our sins. He really did die and he really was buried. And then the last part of that statement was, and he rose again from the grave three days later. Wow, that's Easter. And yes, we celebrate that. And yes, we're glad for that. And yes, If we have a biblical worldview, we believe that. Now, to be sure, there are people that say it's impossible for someone who died to come back to life. (laughs) Well, I understand where they're coming from. They're assuming there is no God. But let me say flat out that if God created us, what's to keep him from bringing anyone back to life? He's the source of life. Yes, of course, that's right. And so... From a biblical perspective, if you look at the world through the biblical lens and it gives you clarity of understanding, then the implications of Jesus coming back to life after three days in the grave matter a great deal. And so that is part of our biblical worldview, and it affects what we do about it in our life. So because that's true, that gives me reason to have, wait for it, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God because no one has ever done that except Jesus. Oh, that's true. Some people came back to life, Lazarus for one in the New Testament. But Jesus is the only one that died, was buried, rose again, and never died again. That's the deciding or the defining characteristic. And if he did that, then That gives him a lot of credibility, so that helps my absolute confidence in his trustworthiness because, wow, I can't do that. You can't do that. Nobody I know can do that, but he did that, and that changes everything. So you see, when I look through the lens of a biblical worldview and I begin to look at life that way, that is a clarifying reality. Same as God is creator and rules the world is a clarifying reality. The same as the Bible is God's word and it's accurate. It tells me the truth about things. The same as that there's no question about what's right and what's wrong because the Bible spells it out. All of those things begin to clarify for me. And as I look through the lens of that biblical worldview, it's not fuzzy anymore. I can begin to understand Let's take a couple more before we run out of time here, shall we? So, so, do you believe that Satan is real, is a real being, not a symbolic being, but a real being, and seeks to defeat God's plan for people? Do you think that Satan is our enemy? Um, yeah, that's that's pretty clear from the Bible. Now, a lot of people don't want to believe in some, such a thing as as real evil, or that evil is is uh, a, is a product of a real creature, but go all the way back to Genesis and in the Garden of Eden, it was a real being described as the serpent that lied to Adam and Eve, convinced them to sin over and over through the scriptures that Satan is dis- described as real, many times not given much status because that was their way of keeping him down. And that was a good, good thing. But if you believe there is a real being who is the enemy of people and wants to destroy people, that changes a lot. The Bible teaches us that Satan is real. He's not to be feared because we can trust in God. Not to worry, is he going to win the battle in the end? No, that's not even close because Jesus crushed it on the cross. There's no question about that. Satan was thoroughly defeated there, but he is real. And he is striving to destroy what God has created. And and some people say it's because he couldn't stand to be second to God. And so he rebelled, and he wants to be God himself. Well, that's a pretty good explanation, don't you think? But Satan is real. And if you don't see the world through the lens that there is a real being we call Satan, then it changes how you think of things, and you want to deny the existence of evil or the source of evil. And if there is something that's evil, then it's important to understand the source of evil, and that source is the being we call Satan. So if you have a biblical worldview, you have to believe some of these things. Some people don't want to believe that, so they try to define Satan out of existence. Well, good luck with that. The Bible says he's real. We're not going to define him out of existence because we want him to go away. He'll go away because we resist him, and he'll run away when we say, leave me alone, I'm going to follow God. But he's not a figment of anybody's imagination. He's a real being. That's the last one we want to look at. Do you believe salvation is obtained by individual faith in Christ's work on the cross and cannot be earned? Well, a couple of ideas in there. One of those is that cannot be earned. Well, the Bible is pretty clear that we don't earn our standing with God. Some people think of of getting right with God as as a balanced scale, you know, where you put the good you do on one side and the bad you do on the other side, and you hope the good outweighs the bad so that you come out on top. Well, the Bible doesn't teach us that we earn our salvation. It doesn't teach us that we get a, you know, a, few marks on our our favor, and so when they add up to enough, you know, if we earn enough credits, we might say suddenly we get 100 credits and we're home, ready to go, we're all set, away we go. No, that's not, the Bible doesn't teach that, but that's back to a biblical worldview. Do you see the world through a biblical lens that recognizes, no, there's nothing I can do to earn my way in, it's because I trust Jesus and follow Him. That's the way the Bible describes salvation. Now, some people, they don't want to believe that. See, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. Change your life and believe the good news. Well, he says, repent. That's what repent means. Repent, change your life and believe the good news. Change your life and have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Isn't that pretty cool? Absolute confidence. In the trustworthiness of God. See, that involves two things confidence in what God says and who He is, and it involves changing our lives. Now, some people want to talk about, well, I have confidence in God and I believe He tells us the truth and I believe this, that, and the other thing about Him. Maybe they would talk about a lot of things that the Bible says that they believe. But at the same time, what Jesus said was change. Your life. Now, what does that mean? That means we have to choose to do the right things and the things Jesus says. And we seek His forgiveness for the things we have and we start anew, and He makes us new and leads us in a new, better way. That is the lens of a biblical worldview. Does that does that not make sense? Of course it makes sense. The the real question that for people to wrestle with is do I want to change? my life. And one of the big questions about changing our lives is, will I have and will I act upon absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God? Will I do what God says? Will I be the person God wants me to be? Will I embrace the perspective that the Bible teaches, or will I try to make up life to be The way I want it to be. Almost all of us would take delight in God saying, okay, you make it up however you want to, and it's fine with me. But he doesn't say that. Almost all of us would love for God to say, yeah, I'll give you a pass. Uh, What One guy I heard referred to as, I'll give you some free sins. Well, he doesn't do that. He calls us to change our lives, to live in the way that he always expected or imagined that we could live. The problem with too many of us is that we give up on what God has done and wants to do in our lives. You see, God doesn't want to leave you where you have been. He wants to lift you to where he knows you can always be, and he wants to lift you out of that stuff so you will make right choices, good choices, biblically informed choices, and then you will change your life You will believe the good news. You will believe what Jesus says. So how about this week you think about one thing that God is asking you to change in your life, that you will now live according to a biblical worldview through the lens of the Bible, and you will change one thing and follow Jesus faithfully. Hey, I'd love to hear about that. I don't know if I can next week, but I'll be back to talk some more. I hope you'll join us. This is Pastor Rick. Until then.